This is Wrong Real episode 484. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going into the world of Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick. And who better with which to have this conversation than Eric Bartlam, who, as we all know, is the inside man when it comes to New York society and art and high culture. All, all the topics we're going to be discl- exploring today. But Eric, welcome back to Wrong Real. Uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is a topic that you brought up a while back, and I have to, at the time, I didn't really know a lot about it. I mean, obviously, I know who Andy Warhol is. He's culturally one of the most important figures of the latter part of the 20th century, but I really had no clue who Edie Sedgwick is. But obviously, there's been a movie based on her starring Sienna Miller called Factory Girl, and she was the lover of Bob Dylan. He wrote a lot of songs about her. Velvet Underground wrote songs about her, and she appeared in many underground movies directed by Andy Warhol. But as I've mentioned before we started recording, my favorite topics are the ones where I get to learn something new. So just thanks in advance for inviting me into this cool conversation. Well, I appreciate you um, agreeing to talk about it. I thought when I, I, I thought originally that Wrong Real was kind of a New York-based podcast, right? Oh, we're like, based in New York. I just like when it comes to the art scene, I couldn't be less plugged in or just even less aware of what goes on. It's a very distinguished bubble with enormous amounts of money floating around and just I mean I go to see I go to a museum like once every three years I went to the Whitney in preparation for this to see oh, wow. the uh, the Andy Warhol print uh, Elvis two times which is oh, a really cool one it basically he did a bunch of prints with um, what is the flick that it is from the flick was Flaming Star and he basically took this image of Elvis with a gun and would do doubles and triples etc and so forth so I got to see Elvis two times which is from 1963 those are really striking. I love those. Um, I, recently, I was at uh, Noma in New Orleans, and they have a portrait of Mick Jagger, which is, you know, from a later period. It's not particularly. Um, it's good. It's not that that period, that early '60s period between, you know, the Coca-Cola bottles and on up until '68, maybe when he shot. Um, those are just staggering to me. I will not pretend to be an expert on Andy Warhol's art, but what I love about his legacy is that he seems to have completely imploded the idea of what art can be, taking something mundane like a Campbell's soup can or, or a banana or a Coke bottle or whatever and turning it into fine art. And the motto and the philosophy of this podcast, you know, everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard or Douglas Sirk to Captain Kirk, however you want to do it, I like trying to erase the artificial boundaries between high culture and low culture. I mean, I can play Angry Birds 
or watch Ingmar Bergman and get just as much out of both of them. And I don't feel the need to shit on one as highbrow or lowbrow, etc. And it seems like the the guy who really came up with this idea in the first place is Andy Warhol. Yeah, um, the thing about Andy Warhol, you know, this had been done before with Duchamp, uh, you know, the Fountain Fountain, where he has the urinal and he places it on a pedestal as a piece of fine art. It's kind of a joke. It's kind of a comment on the end of art. Uh, but for Warhol, he, he, he seemed to embody the idea that the Brillo box was an aesthetically admirable piece of art. Like he seemed to be a product of a different age. It's not so much a joke. And it's even an effort to democratize art. Um, it's something that everybody recognizes. It's something that everybody can engage with. So there's kind of this irony where it gets placed you know, as high art, but not necessarily his intention. Yeah, exactly. Like if you walked into an ice cream shop and saw one of his prints of Marilyn Monroe, it would be totally appropriate. Or if you walk into the MoMA and see one of his prints of Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> yeah. it's totally appropriate. And I love that. Well, and there's a there's a there's also a kind of a heavy aspect to it. Not heavy, but certainly a, a conceptually interesting aspect to it. You know, Andy Warhol grew up as a and remained throughout his whole life an Eastern Rite Catholic. His family was from the eastern eastern end of Slovakia in the mountains, um, and they it's a strange setup. It's part of the Habsburg Empire where they allowed them to continue the Orthodox type of service but with fealty to the pope and the thing is that the icons the imagery in the eastern church in the orthodox church is very flat it's very two-dimensional um and there's a theological aspect to it you've seen the holy mountain uh the jodorowsky film yeah jodorowsky. Yeah, yeah absolutely you know the uh the kind of gag at the beginning where they have the sexualization of catholic icons of the crucifixes and things like that absolutely well, an orth, or Eastern Orthodox person would immediately recognize that joke. They felt that Catholic imagery was too sensual, too, you know, um, if you've ever seen like... Uh, I mean, religion showbiz, baby. you got to sexualize yeah. it to a, to a degree. <laughs> well, if you've ever seen the ecstasy of St. Teresa... I have not. She is, it's a statue, and she's receiving God's love from an angel with repeated stabs from a spear, and it looks like you think it looks nice i'm looking it up right now i might need it for inspiration in my special private time uh yeah. later on this evening let's see let's see what we're what we're talking about oh that's uh that's that's phenomenal yeah yeah so the eastern church really saw that as sinful almost so andy grows up and we're talking uh, the church has iconostasis which is a screen between the altar and the congregation and it's full of these two-dimensional images of saints of Mary, of the crucifix. Um, and the point is that the third dimension is filled by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Mary, or the Spirit of the Saint. And when you look at these paintings of Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, um, it's obvious that they're being presented as icons, and they're in this flat, two-dimensional... Uh, you know, the other thing about it is it, 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 the, the originality of the image didn't matter. It was the Spirit that carried through in the repetition of the images. And so you see with Elvis, there's hundreds of them. Marilyn Monroe, he'll just print like 50 of them in one, one go. And the colors, the variation on the colors and everything, but the image itself is not even his eventually. He has completely removed his hand from it. 
any idea that it's original, except for the coloring, which he was very good at. Um, so I, I just find his work fascinating in a totally different way than you than say you might think about Matisse or whatever, where you see his hand. And this is his sort of presentation of the everyday in a way that you wouldn't expect, but is familiar. Whereas Warhol just he just swipes stuff and just. <laughs> I, it's a strange thing, but I think we still live with it today. Um, I think it's all over culture. I think his influence cannot be overestimated. Also, what I love is how, with his background, he comes from. It's not like he went to. I guess his initial goals. He was a commercial illustrator, yeah, yeah. and he made that transition as a commercial illustrator into something else and it seems like obviously he was discovering what he was going to become as he went he was always in the process of evolving but it seems like at least for the purposes of this conversation the big one of the big pivot points was when he created the factory which was this place in here in new york where writers and dancers or homeless people or drug addicts or just any kind of freaks that he found to be interesting because of just unusual characteristics could co come and hang out and find each other and not feel quite like outsiders. And occasionally he would make short films about them or he would just throw these incredible parties. And out of the factory, we also see this pivot point where he at least claimed he's going to stop doing any art of any kind. He was going to be purely a filmmaker. And of course, everyone's like, what are you talking about? Why would you give up this incredible career to be a filmmaker, especially if your movies are you know, going to be underground movies, etc. But right at this point in his life, when he's making uh, these underground movies, into his life steps, Edie Sedgwick. Now, Edie Sedgwick, as, as fascinating as Warhol's career might be, Edie Sedgwick is probably more famous for her life story as opposed to her output. It's not like she wrote a bunch of great books or wrote a lot of great poetry or wrote a lot of great songs or had really deep ideas, but she was this astonishing superstar celebrity persona that was like a meteorite right through New York City for like a year or two where she became the most high-profile individual imaginable, and your party was not a success unless she was in attendance. And then her story was over almost as quickly as it had begun at dead at age 28. So today we're going to be mostly preoccupied with the intersection of their two lives, the work that was created, and then, sadly, how her story um, drew to a close. But before we start talking about that fateful day when she and Andy Warhol first met at some cocktail party, give people a little background as to Edie's, because Edie's background could not be more different from Andy Warhol's in terms of the society she comes from, the background, the history, the pedigree, etc. Yeah, and that's really important for them. It's important to Andy, because Andy, of course, is the son of immigrants. Um, he feels insecure about that. It, uh, even though his, he and his mother were very close, she lived with him until she died in New York City. He was embarrassed by her accent, her broken English. I mean, he was very self-conscious about his immigrant status or first-generation status. Edie Sedgwick, on the other hand, is like the Mayflower family. I mean, it, we're back to governors of Massachusetts. They're all Harvard people. They're CEOs, presidents of companies, politicians. She comes from about as blue blood a stock as you could, you could probably find. Northeastern Massachusetts. Uh, and broad strokes sounds like it'd be a wonderful, beautiful thing. However... There's That's also right. this horrible dark side where her father was a let's just say to put it mildly domineering, and if his kids didn't necessarily behave the way he wanted them to, he was more than happy just to 
throw them in the nut house for a while until they kind of came around and they were brought up in like total isolation because they were they were they were taught to be that, that they were superior to their peers. So why would you go to school? Why not just be homeschooled? And so there's a lot of mental mental illness in her family. Both her brothers committed two of her brothers committed suicide. There are rumors that the father was making the occasional sexual advances toward Edie. And so she grew up in a really, I mean, as they say, like, in, in, like with the name of the short film, she was a poor little rich girl. Like she had every opportunity yeah. and all these trust funds and the ability to move to New York and reinvent herself as a model and an actress and then you know, throw lavish parties and pick up the tab at dinner and that sort of thing. But there was a lot of darkness in her background as well. Yeah, I'm always a little, I'm always a little off put by comments about like, say, Sofia Coppola's movies or whatever, you know, it's all these rich, you know, these poor princesses, you know, these poor rich people or whatever. Well, they do have interesting lives and some of them are not good. I mean, Edie Sedgwick's a perfect example. Wealth, prestige, name, everything. I mean, she lacked for nothing in this world except for genuine affection, love, mental stability. She had a terrible life, really. Uh, it, it, there are these moments of brilliance and these sort of moments of kind of that are very engaging. You're fascinated with her or whatever. But behind that is just a terrible, dark story of addiction, abuse. Uh, like you said, it's possible she was sexually molested by her father, her brothers. Some of her, a couple of her brothers made advances at her, according to her, but were willing not to, you know, when she said no. She was in and out of institutions from, what, 13, I think? Yeah, a lot of bulimia, a lot of eating disorders yeah. and things like that. I mean, it was it, it was, it was, great in the sense that she could carve her own destiny and reinvent herself in New York City, but it was also horrible because obviously she was haunted by a lot of demons, many of which led to her premature demise and her unimaginable eventual drug abuse where they say she would wake up every morning and for breakfast would just have a plate of speed. It's like, all right, you are not trying to live a nice, a nice long, healthy life. You're eating speed for breakfast. She, you know, we would not know who she was if it wasn't for Andy Warhol. But Andy Warhol was probably the worst person for her to attach herself to. Because like his art, and like he always said, there's really not anything there. It's all on the surface. If you want to know me, or if it's attributed to him, if you want to know me, just look at the paintings. It's all there. And I love she, that attitude. I feel like yeah, we, we get way too preoccupied with the biographies of artists. And oh, yeah. in the end, let the book or the movie or the song or whatever speak for itself. But in this instance, he really didn't have a whole lot there as far as affection to give. Like it, and so she, that's part of what drove her and others around him. Um, and never could get a real connection with him. So it, it was a bad, it was a, it was a glorious meeting and it was a very sort of like um, terrible meeting. Well, to, um, for a while it worked really well where it was like mutually yeah. symbiotic where just in terms of her accent and the way she expressed herself and her personal charm and her, her relationships with fabulously wealthy people, people who would like to buy art, etc. Okay. She helped him enter those upper echelons that he would like to get to. On the other hand, she found this bizarre little creative bohemian family that could provide some of the family bonding that she was so desperately craving. But a lot of people feel as if as much as he was fond of her, he also liked to use people up. And he had, you know, he was surrounded by all the superstars and he'd keep the people he surrounded himself were almost works of art in their own right. And he would kind of turn them loose. And, but 
artists and writers. I mean, if you if you have a friend who's a writer, guess what? If you tell them an interesting story, it's probably going to end up in one of their articles or one of their books. Artists use whatever's around them, so naturally he's going to use this fascinating creature. And together, they were, in 1965, basically, the two most interesting people in New York City. And they kind of defined the cultural landscape. And in a lot of ways, they defined just the art scene and, the more importantly, the celebrity scene in New York at that time. Pop art, op art, underground movies, call it what you will, these two are the leaders. No party in New York is considered a success unless they are there. It's hard to explain this young lady and man. They say they don't want to be explained. One is a beautiful actress, and she calls herself a superstar. The other is a young man named Andy Warhol, the creator of pop art. So here are the two leading exponents of the new scene, Edie Sedgwick and Andy Warhol. I didn't know you were going to be so formal tonight. I would have taken this tie off here. <laughs> What's the matter? It's so nerve-wracking. Is it nerve-wracking? these people. I'm not used to having to face all these people. Well, they're friendly. They're very friendly. Well, this and a, and a rather tight jacket makes it a little more frightening. Oh, oh. It's hard to breathe. It wants to all blow at you? No? <laughs> Good evening, Andy. I've Andy, read... oh, I must warn you, Andy won't say a word. Why? Um, he's not used to making really public appearances, so I think uh, he'll, he'll whisper answers to me if you ask him a question. Can I listen while prepared. he whispers? Uh, I'll whisper to you. Aren't you going to say one word, Andy? I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're very curious, and that's why everybody is so friendly. We read much about uh, underground movies and all of Andy's work, which we know so well. What, would you first of all tell, tell the audience, for those who might not know what underground movies are? These are not war stories. Oh, <laughs> uh, how can I tell you? It's, um, so far they've been visual experiments. Um, people making movies, trying to see if they could do it. And they um, are not shown in theaters? They're shown in one theater, in uh, somewhere down in the village. <laughs> It's just one theater. Otherwise, it, private showings. I see. Don't really... What, what would be the subject matter, for example? Uh, They're not stories, necessarily. Um, what some have, of them are. What have been? There's been one that's been a take... I don't dare say it. I really don't. Because everything you I say gets misinterpreted. you want to whisper it to me, and I'll... I'll whisper to Andy. Then how will we know? Oh, I don't want to be involved in that. That tell was all... Edie, tell all right, about sleep. sleep. Andy had a fabulous movie going with somebody sleeping for eight hours, was it? Eight hours? Eight hours. It's true. I have to say it's true. It's an eight-hour movie, and the camera's on somebody, and all they're doing is sleeping. Well, you can see them breathing, you know. And but does it take know. eight hours to watch it? Well, those were all, that's what was all before I got in on it. Um, now it's all changed. <laughs> Yeah, they um, they shape that whole era, like yeah. New York for New York. Even after she's gone, it still hangs over. And she's the one that really, like, you think about him bringing her up, but he was not as much of a household name as he was after her. 
Yeah, on the Merv Griffin show, he yeah, doesn't Merv talk. Griffin. He no. whispers no. into her ear, and she will speak for him, and she's delightful. And they say at a party, she was magnetic in terms of her charm, the way she would dance, yeah. how she was completely uninhibited, completely uh, like not self-conscious in, in any way. The way she would stand, she was completely her own creation, wearing these uh, <laughs> these like leotards yeah. and these bizarre like blouses and just painting her hair silver. They just looked extraordinary together. And you could have an art exhibit with no art on the wall and thousands of people would show up and it'd just be a madhouse. So it's just a complete total media frenzy but along yeah. the way they did make a lot of quote-unquote movies that are part of the underground scene that often has a play in one theater so maybe that's the best place to start when does she step in front of a camera for andy warhol for the first time well the first time i believe is vinyl that's my understanding as well bizarrely enough is a remake or a, a, a movie adaptation of a clockwork orange but considering there's no script there's no you know it's I've watched it. It's it's cool, but it, it's just crazy. Uh, and she's in there kind of in the background. But the first thing that was done for her was Kitchen. Um, is after It's always talked about as if, if Andy Warhol just discovered that he had a sound camera. Every time they talk about it, it's like in 1965 or whatever. He never so, really discovered that he had to use sound. I mean... Admittedly, a lot of the available prints of his movies are in wretched condition, but recording clean sound was not one of his main priorities, which makes a lot of the quote-unquote dialogue in his movies totally inaudible in a lot, in a lot yeah, of cases. And he talked about that. He said, I want the dirt. I want the scratches. I want bad zooms. I want the camera to move away from something that's supposed to be important, the moment that's leading up to. He said, I want people to know they're watching a movie. I want to keep reminding them that they're watching a movie. Yeah, he basically stripped his movies of everything that makes movies movies. Like he, like editing or camera movements or professionalism or screenplays. Like he basically stripped it down to, I'm going to shoot movies like in bulk <laughs> for, for hours on end. Even if it's just a guy sleeping for eight hours and you're just going to watch him breathe. Well, but think about the way we talk about movies. That's a visual medium. But if you say, well, what kind of movie is it? You say, well, it was a horror movie or it was a romantic comedy or it was a Western or it was like, those are literary terms. Um, yeah, genre films, narrative films. Yeah. We don't talk about the type of visual experience it is or the type of sort of aesthetic experience. That's not the first Let's thing. It's pure about. raw cinema, which is yeah. one of my favorite well, ways to describe I mean, something. It's a pure raw, you know, hundred proof cinema. And of course, like when you t when we talk about, empire or sleep it was never his intention that somebody sit for 24 hours and watch it it wasn't the point like he even said i like the idea that somebody could go get a cup of coffee and then come back and you know <laughs> sit back down and nothing's changed well the technology wasn't there at the time but what his movies should have been imagine a giant gallery where all over the walls you have all these mm -hmm. monitors playing his movies where you can kind of drift from one to the other watching as much or as little as you like and it's almost like they're installations, not movies. But his movies were playing in theaters. They would rent out underground theaters. They would play them, and you would sit in the theater as if you're watching Lawrence of Arabia or some other movie from that time. Yeah, that, they don't remind me of this kind of experiences, but it really reminds me of is walking through a gallery where you can skip around however you like. Or even when the case of Chelsea Girls, his biggest movie, 
it was up to the projectionist to decide which yeah. soundtrack to play at any given time of the two screens. It was never meant to be the same movie again and again and again. So he was completely reinventing the form for his own purposes. And and the idea of time, like film time. Me and me and Miss Jenny have been watching the American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw the first three seasons, and I tried watching the second and most recent one, but I bailed after an episode. But not right now, it's the 1984 one, right? Yeah, and the first four or five episodes happen over one night. And I just, you know, I drive a lot, whatever. I, well, let's hear what people are saying about this. And they keep talking about this never-ending night, this never-ending night. When is this night ever going to end? What's well, it in four hours? Even in the middle of the summer, night time's longer than four hours. Yeah. It's so, a good, it's a cool show. I mean, I love, obviously, early 80s slasher flicks. Uh, it's fun. It's a little less self-serious than some of the others, so we've enjoyed watching. Season one and two were actually like scary. Like season two, especially, yeah, yeah. I was like, "God damn, this is a TV show. It's like scaring the shit out of me." <laughs> yeah, and it's it's fun. Um, we've enjoyed it, but the the idea is that we have we have a specific way of viewing time in movies and in television shows, and it's not a literal time. Well, Andy Warhol gives you literal time. Like it's this is eight hours of somebody sleeping. Yeah, there are no jump cuts. You never there are no jump cuts. Any cuts. So, um, have you seen Eat with Robert Indiana, where he's eating the mushroom? <laughs> that one's only forty-five minutes, and it is a meditative sort of but like. It icon. reminds me of the movies from like eighteen ninety-six, eighteen ninety-seven, where it's just <laughs> yeah. like like man and woman kiss, and it just be called that, and you would just see a minute of people kissing or it was like man learns to take a bath and just be a guy. It really is kind of the bare bones or like the very first, the very first movie, like the Lumiere brother, the the Lumiere workers leaving the factory. It's just the people walk out and it's over. But instead of it being a one minute little cinematograph experience that you watch in the arcade, he's just stretching it out. (laughs) You have to contemplate. You have to think, I mean, nobody sits through it. Okay. I've just, just confession. I've never sat through empire. All right, I love this idea of what he's doing, but I've never sat through and watched it. Um, but even as we go on with sound, we're talking about kitchen. That too has no cuts. There's no editing. There's no. Uh, he went to Ronald Tavell or Tavell and asked him. He he said, "I need a I need a situation," and he asked him, "You want a plot?" And he says, "Oh gosh, no." He you wants know, a scenario or just a scenario, yeah. a situation, something for him to do. And so this is what you get, which is just, I, I it, it, it tickles me. Kitchen tickles me. Um, I don't think it's particularly beautiful, but it does tickle me. Um, you know, the sneezing that she's doing throughout the whole, she's sneezing through the whole thing. When she comes in and um, with a lot of these movies, she starts a task. She's putting on makeup. You get a lot of that, a lot of sort of tasks, whether it's somebody shooting up, you know, speed or putting on makeup or eating them. A mushroom is really anthropological in that way. Like, if you wanted to know how someone applied their makeup in the 1960s, it's there as part of this movie. And it's in a lot of them. But what what goes on in there? I mean, at one point, she's his mother. At another point, she's strangled on the table. It's There's just no, there's no, I don't know how much of a situation it was. In well, it's, I said, I mean, he dubbed her his superstar, and he was always grooming superstars. But the goal was to almost reinvent with the idea of what a star even is. Like when they're being interviewed by Merv Griffin, they're not really trying to put down 
past stars, you know, of different forms of one or another. But it almost seems like they're trying to discover something new together. But I know that part of this, I think she had some unrealistic expectations about just how far these movies would take her because obviously she wanted to be a star star and she was rapidly burning through several trust funds. And it's not not like these movies were, you know, like the James Bond films where they have to keep the theaters open around the clock in order to handle all the the demand. These movies were not making any money. He basically was funneling all this profits from his art into these movies and just burning through the cash. And she was burning through all of her cash through all these parties, but it, it... we start seeing the seeds for their later schism because she, she never really seemed to grasp the idea that this was not a viable like business model. Like <laughs> these, these are these are these are artistic creations, but they're not. It's not a commercial endeavor. Well, but part of the problem there too was that Warhol did want to eventually do that. These were all. This is the thing, man. He wanted he, to go Hollywood. Oh, you got this great concept. What an artist! But behind it, he's just trying to figure out how to. How to how to make how to make it? He thought movies were more democratic. Again, you get it to more people, and he wanted to become a Hollywood producer. So there was probably talk of that all the time. Like we're just getting there, we're getting there. And but yeah, this this became a problem because she became crucial in 1965 to those movies. Yeah, I mean she's the star for that one year. She's the, basically the star of everything he does. I guess into into 66 as well because. And it was during the filming of Chelsea Girls where her section got removed because of how she's, she'd kind of moved over to Bob Dylan's camp. But I found this great line by Roger Ebert describing Andy Warhol's films where he's reviewing uh, the Chelsea Girls in 1967. And he said, what we have here is three and a half hours of split screen improvisation, poorly photographed, hardly edited at all, employing perversion and sensation like chili sauce to disguise the aroma of the meal. Warhol has nothing to say and no technique to say it with. He simply wants to make movies, and he does. Hours and hours of them. And I- <laughs> Here's room 506. It's enough to make you sick. It's all wrapped up in foil You wonder if She can uncoil Here they come now See them run now Here they come now Chelsea Fifteen filled with the centum queens, magic marker. You wonder just how high they go. And I actually think Warhol might like that last sentence. He would, yeah, he probably would just totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although I do think that's a little harsh for Chelsea Girls. 
I, Chelsea girls, and it may be because I'm a product of post-Warhol era, but there are images and the imagery and the combination of the images in that movie when they're when they're right. I watched a pretty bad copy of it. Yeah, I watched like a pretty wretched copy on YouTube as well, where sometimes the audio just drops out entirely. The images were relatively clear, but man, for me, if I can't understand what people, even if they're talking about the most just innocuous, everyday bullshit imaginable, I want to hear what the fucking characters were saying. And it was, it's tough sitting there for three and a half hours when it's just like, wah, 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 kind of, because also, and once again, it wasn't recorded that well to begin with, and you had these kind of like nasally, drug addicts just rambling about nonsense in their hotel rooms. Yeah. Um, and the, but the way that they're sequenced, I watched the YouTube too. It's not good. Like, like you said, there's 12. It's there's almost 12 impossible videos. to find in a home video format. Like whoever looks after the Warhol estate has done a wretched job of yeah. nurturing and maintaining as like working as a custodian for his cinematic legacy. Yeah. And the way that they're put together on that YouTube real bad, you there's one point where the Hanoi Hannah scene which is Mary Warnoff and uh, uh, International Velvet. And then they've got Ingrid Superstar under the desk, and they're, like, throwing stuff at her. and um, Where it's coupled with another scene in the same room with the same actors. I mean, it looks like one long scene, which is totally against the point of it. And then there's one where both reels are in silent. Um, and they don't have the, the scene with... Malanga and Mary Warnoff, she's sitting on the bed with the polka dot tie. That to me is one of the one of the aesthetically most pleasing scenes, but it was silent on this one I watched and it had Eric tells all where the you know the kid sits there for ten minutes and he starts to talk and get undressed and it's all red. Gotcha. Yeah, and the scene that jumps out at me the most is when you basically have like a couple of guys and girls just constantly kind of trying to yank this one dude's clothes off. And, and, and this poor guy is just uh, a little boy toy, but it's just one of those things where the Chelsea Hotel had all these bizarre eccentrics, and Warhol was fascinated with some of them, and they just set up cameras and watched them. But what's interesting is how John Waters really responded to this. And you can see yeah. how John Waters, in his own way, with his freak show down in Balmer, was doing kind of a similar thing as Andy Warhol, where he had his superstars. He had Divine instead of Nico and yeah. things like that. And he, yeah, kind of, he kind of takes the exact same model, but does like the ultimate white trash version of it yeah. down and in Baltimore. About, John Waters obviously, obviously watched. Now, Chelsea Girls traveled. John Waters certainly saw a screening, there's no doubt. Um, but the difference is, whereas Andy's just trying to make these people do something. He's trying to get them out of themselves, trying to get what he sees every day in the factory, trying to provoke them. Like John Waters loves these people. Like this is his crowd. It's yeah. not they're not misfits and people. oddballs that are not yeah. gonna be starring Ben Hur, but they can star in Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos <laughs> and female trouble. But they he's definitely of them. Andy World's not really of those people. Um it's interesting, there is a there's a real parallel between Valerie Solanas, who shoots him, and Charles Manson, and their situations. Like, Andy Warhol is dragging these people up out of curiosity. If Can he use them? He probably feels some affinity for them. Um, and probably disposes them when they outlive their usefulness. Well, that's what happened. And you think about Manson and these people that keep telling him he's going to get in the music business. And Valerie thinks he's going to publish her work, you know, turn her script, her book into a movie. And she finally shoots him and, and she says i just need I'm trying to get his attention you know trying to get you to actually look at me not just treat me like some kind of anthropological project or, or a, a, a bit of 
paint on a canvas, which is essentially yeah. what all these freaks were. Yeah, and you know, we talk about Edie not really having anything to say, not having that's the I mean, that is the epitome of what was coming out of Andy Warhol. Well, that's like, what celebrity it, culture is. It's the art of being yeah. fascinating and saying nothing all at once. Like this, like that, like that's, when you go on a talk show, they don't actually want you to say anything. They just want you to be beautiful and fascinating, and you can't take the eyes off, your eyes off the person, but the goal is not to say anything that anyone's actually going to remember. And it's kind of yeah. like celebrity culture is vapid, and that's why people like it. That's why people like it. But now there, there's an important aspect to this as well because – when Andy Warhol's he's he's working as a graphic artist in the fifties, the the dominant art form is abstract expressionism, which is very heady. Yeah, all the Jackson Pollock folks and Joan Mitchell, art, et cetera. Cooning, um, see that Cedar Creek or Cedar Bar crowd. It's also very intellectual and manly. There's no place for Andy Warhol in there. Um, there's no place for a kind of not flamboyant, but certainly, you know. Kind of, of a, a nerdy gay dude who grew up reading comic yeah. books. No place for him. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, the vapidity of what he's doing and his willingness to really go out front with having nothing to say, I have nothing to say, is a reaction in part to the intellectualization of the art world in the 50s and these macho men, these thinkers, these drunks. These you wanted nothing to do with it. Well, I and, love the pop art crowd, especially Roy Lichtenstein or Steen. Yeah. I, I never quite know how to say, it, but I've seen some of his stuff up up close at, at the MoMA, and I love how he would take like a corner of a panel of a comic and then blow it up to enormous yeah. proportions and make it something really special. Like, there's that great one with the girl. Like I think it's just called Drowning Girl. Yeah. She's like, I won't call for Brad no matter how much I need his help or something yeah. like that. And then the original panel, you see him like ripping his shirt off and he's like wading into yeah. the water to come save her. But instead, it's just he just focused on that one bit. But Lichtenstein basically took comic book panels and made them he, – he and Warhol obviously were part of the, the same family tree. But obviously there are people out there who know a hell of a lot more about pop art. But like, please stop talking. You're making yourself sound idiotic. No, all, all, all I'll say is I enjoy Roy Lichtenstein's stuff in the flesh because okay. I've had a chance to see some of it here in New York, and it's, it's always super cool. I mean if you walk into a room and that's – it's there. It just pops out. It, it, it Just have the experience of it. Don't, don't think about the originality of it. Don't think about the technique that was involved. Just experience it. Let it, it – it's, it's glorious. It takes me back to being five in seconds when, like, when I first started reading comics. Most comics were printed on pretty crummy paper with pretty poor color. And instead of having uniform like color, you just have little dots. <laughs> and so, but when you take those little dots and then blow them up to like a 30 by 50 foot canvas, they look extraordinary and they look like they have almost like a mathematical, almost computerized efficiency, but they're all hand done by Lichtenstein. Yeah, and that, those things, I just, I find it, I love it. I love it. I find that it's so pleasing. Brillo boxes, Campbell soup cans, comics. It seems like such a part of now, even to this day. It seems like um, it's like a break in time, a aesthetic break in time, where this sort of palette just opens up and you everything becomes um, for aesthetic consideration. Like everything, you know, you just... Like all good art, it shows you something that's mundane in a way that you just never thought about. And Well, it caught on because so many people started to basically want to reinvent themselves to act as if they're a part of the scene or move to New York hoping to have some sort of proximity to the scene. Because when you – I was watching one of the documentaries with the making of Factory Girl, which is basically just a documentary about mm -hmm. the lives of Edie Sedgwick and Andy Warhol, and you have all these kind of – 
old fat people now who are still dining out on having been close to That's all right. this action at the time. Yep. It's like they're not Nico, they're not Edie Sedgwick, they're not yep. Andy Warhol, but they were at the parties and were kind of observing from a distance. And you can tell it defined their lives. Like just oh, just to be able to have just to be in the same universe or same sphere as these luminaries that were just blazing, like I said, blazing like a comet across the sky of Manhattan and just changing the way the, the city felt about so many different topics. And I, I guess like for me, I'm way more interested in the story of Warhol and Edie Sedgwick than I am in their actual films. That said, Beauty Number 2, I think, is my favorite of their collaborations. It's got an interesting shot composition and mm-hmm. it's it's lit in an interesting fashion, and you get to see Edie Sedgwick at her most provocative, her most sexual, her most alluring, and you get you start to understand why she was like, like what, what, there she had all these like nicknames for how people the, uh, the youth Quaker she was dubbed yeah, the girl of the year and the it girl and like all these magazines were constantly coming to all these like ways to describe her but in beauty number 2 you start to get why she was such a lightning rod of uh, of attention yeah everything um about her seems to just fit the camera the way she moves the way she fidgets certainly the way she talks talks with her hands um the way she looks it, it just seems that seems like her talent is this ability to fit the camera. The camera just can't she get loved the camera. Oh. Apparently, yeah. she was yeah she was not afraid of the camera. She actively sought out cameras at at all occasions. Yeah. <laughs> and the cameras probably were trying to get to her. I mean, yeah. it, it's uh, and of course it's a disturbing. It, it, that one is uh, you know accidentally very disturbing. I don't know if it's an, even an accident. He's trying to provoke her. He's yeah. got Chuck Line over there trying to get her to break down this blue blood you know, exterior and just go berserk. Kind of like he gets from Dean later. Uh, but it just creates this anxious atmosphere. It's, and then you can't really hear it. And what you can hear is uh, he's provoking her. He's saying, you know, you use people. You don't really, you don't have much thought in your head. You know, you're, you're, you're only concerned about money. You know, what are you going to do with this fella? You know, what if I leave and all this? And she's, you know, you got the camera watching her. She's got the fella she's in bed with. And then Chuck Wine off the screen. So she just must have a million eyes on her. A million people trying to, like, mess with her. It, it just, it's, it's unsettling. Yeah, uh, I mean, but at least there's tension. Like, for me, like, cinema is nothing without tension. Like, I, I need some tension. I can't watch a guy sleep for eight hours. I'm sorry. I will go on a shooting spree. <laughs> so, uh, if you are, yeah, if you're going to just set up a camera for an, and, and most, these are not shorts. Like, most of these, quote unquote, shorts, they're like 70 minutes long. So, you're like, all right, if I'm going to sit here for 70 fucking minutes, you got to give me something. To, to, you can give me a car wreck of some kind, even if it's an emotional one. Yeah, and it does. Uh, it does that. It's, and I don't think. And the reason I say accidental is I don't think he's trying to create. He believed, and I'm I'm in his camp on this. That plots and narratives were manipulative. You know, it's just manipulative. They've been honed for thousands of years to produce the same response in the largest number of people, and they're always. And he really tried to avoid any of that kind of manipulative tension. But in this one, because she doesn't really go berserk and that become the focus, it is this tense experience for an hour. It starts out pleasant enough, although it's still a little weird. I mean, 
they've come back from a club, they're both half dressed, they're in bed, and then this person just starts talking to them. You know, it's, it's menacing. Uh, so I like it. I do like that one. I think and it, it, it does make me uncomfortable. Got new clothes, but lately I see her ribbons and her bows have fallen from her curls. She takes just like a woman, yes, she does. She makes love just like a woman, yes, she does, and she aches just like a woman but she breaks just like a little girl Queen Mary Let's start to talk a little bit about where the wheels start to fly off the cart and we have a little deterioration in the relationship between Edie and Warhol because there was a strange thing going on where initially the Bob Dylan circle of friends and the Warhol circle of friends got along and you see like Bob Dylan doing a screen test for Andy Warhol and they're all kind of friendly but as you know as money and fame and success enter the equation you start to see kind of a schism between these two camps especially when it comes to Edie who's in love with Dylan and depending on who you listen to it's hard to know exactly what is the truth at this point. In the movie Factory Girl, Dylan and Edie full-blown get it on. There's full frontal nudity. Sienna Miller showing her bush. It's hot. It's, it's, it looks great. And so according to the movie, they, they were boning, but it seems as if Dylan wasn't interested in some sort of long-term thing. But the question was, could Edie make the transition over to being like a movie star or a TV star, like, a, like an actual star, as opposed to just one of these kind of make-believe superstars. And at the same time, her drug consumption starts to reach legendary proportions. And she starts burning through cash and quite literally burning down her hotel rooms and yes, stealing jewelry and art from her relations to pay for drugs and things like that. So, I mean, it was like a, a it was like a big chandelier for a little while. Everybody was just in, in awe of how sparkly it was. And then suddenly it starts going to the dark side very quickly. Well, you know, speed is absolutely crucial to understanding the factory, Andy, Warhol, all of it. And speed, I mean, the, in Chelsea Girls, you see Bridget Berlin. I mean, she Bridget Berlin shoots up. On Dean shoots up at the in the yeah. lab in the uh, Pope on Dean. Um, they were t- totally uh, speed freaks, and she was involved in that, of course. And it's possible. I mean, I've heard you know part of the story. And again, like you said, it's it's hard to know what's true and what's not. But Dylan may have been the one that introduced her to heroin. And heroin's what really got her. Heroin gets everybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there are right. not a lot of like wonderful success stories about people who love heroin. <laughs> yeah, right. And they've gone on to um, like Miles Davis 
fucked around heroin for a long time, but he yeah. didn't get a lot of work done when he was on heroin until he finally got clean. And same, like Charlie Parker killed him. Or, I mean, yeah, just, yeah. In I've never tried heroin. I've never yeah. snorted it, shot it, and I, I have no interest in it because there's no like great like you. You will hear stories from like Steve Jobs, like, oh, I took LSD for the first time and put on my headphones, and I went to another universe. When I came back, I designed Brick Breaker. Like, like that, that's a cool drug story. But with heroin, heroin stories always end in the gutter. In the gutter, and now, and honestly, that. There wasn't any. I don't. The factory wasn't a heroin place. Yeah, I know Andy Warhol was really turned off by hardcore drug abuse. Well, except for speed, of course. Yeah, it was. It was speed. Speed. Yeah, I didn't um, take a speed, but it's a harmless vice. I know. Like my dad's like, oh yeah, in college we used to take these little yellow pills. I'm like, I mean, what were these? Like, I don't know. Little yellow pills. You study for three days, you take your exams, and you pass out. I'm like, well, that sounds like you were taking some sort of amphetamine. <laughs> yeah, methamphetamine. You know, that's the way I like it with Bridget shoots Ingrid Superstar. She goes, oh, she's gonna be up for three days. <laughs> So, yeah, I have never wanted to be up for three days for anything. <laughs> uh, and some of the, uh, there was some talk about how even the movies like like Empire and Sleep that we talked about earlier on speed, Andy may have been seeing something totally different. Oh my god, I, I, I would assume not that I'm some I'm not super knowledgeable about um, uppers, but I imagine these movies would be really frustrating to watch because like I've had movie experience like when you take hallucinogenics. It's a totally different experience because it destroys your attention span. Like everything's in the moment. So trying to sustain your interest in a narrative is almost impossible. You need music or conversation or walking, like stuff that's very, that requires no attention span. So you can just live in the moment. And I feel like these movies, you're very much living in the moment. I imagine if you're on speed, you probably get to the fucking point. (laughs) (laughs) You know the point before it starts. Yeah, it's like, oh, the point is the very first shot because we're going to still be here at at the end of this hour. But uh, money becomes an issue because she is going through. She's gone through so much money, all these trust funds. Um, she even talks in Beauty, uh, or in uh, Poor Little Rich Girl, which is my favorite. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's, that's got probably the most favorite. craft of the various short films. You actually do get some different shots, and you really get to appreciate her crazy garish eye makeup that she was. You know, that was part of her aesthetic. Was like you know, she had yeah. these giant eyes, and she would accentuate with the the crazy makeup. Yeah, she said she was doing like jazz dance twice a day, so she'd just come home in her leotard, t-shirt, whatever. Well, that's how they went out, and that's that her look, yeah. style and her look. But in that, especially that first reel, that's not in focus. There's no talking. She gets up. She does some stretching. She sits at her mirror, and she puts on that Everly Brothers record. That thing is gorgeous. I I, I love the first reel of that. And then the second reel is interesting too, because Chuck Wine is in again asking her all these questions. I mean, that's when she talks about her dream, and that's one of the, to me, it seems like one of the most genuine moments for her, even though I think everything is genuine because there's just not a lot. Um, when she talks about the dream where she's going downstairs, she's walking downstairs, just walking down, 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 and she says, I never think to go up. And Chuck Wine's like, well, you're taking the easy way out. It's like he doesn't understand what she's trying to say or he won't acknowledge like, what she's I'm depressed and suicidal yeah. and I'm going to have a very short lifespan. And she's like, I think I'm done, you know. And that's where we are. I mean, she's 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 blazed on drugs. She's out of money. So she starts taking that frustration out on Andy, who's not paying her, even though she knows there's no money from these movies. Yeah. Chelsea Girl's the only one that ever made any money. And she wasn't even in that one. Her scene got cut because she was under contract elsewhere. Yeah. And Bob, and according to the movie, and I, I don't really know so hard this episode because Dylan 
Bob Dylan denies writing any songs about her and all this stuff, and I don't think that's true. Yeah, I mean, people th- people claim Just Like a Woman and Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat were written about her. It's hard to confirm, but what we do know for a fact is that Femme Fatale on that first Velvet Underground album was absolutely written about her, and that's an astonishingly beautiful song, and I'm going to open the episode with that tune because I, I fucking love Femme Fatale. You go right ahead because yeah. I love that. But, you know, they were at... They Have we finally found some music that you and I agree on? Well, it's definitely the Velvet Underground. Absolutely. Yeah, because that first album, I, I went through a phase where I kind of had it playing on a loop, and I, I feel like that's the epitome of what the village would like to believe itself to be in terms of like the village sound, the aesthetic, the mood. There's a lot about the village now, which is like middle-aged gay dudes going grocery shopping, so it's not quite as cool as like Velvet <laughs> Underground. But I live in the heart of the village, and I've used to live down right down like on by a McDougal where all these bands really got their start, and like Bob Dylan used to play, and Woody Allen's out there doing stand-up. But when I think of like the six, the epitome of New York '60s cool, that first Velvet Underground is kind of the the epitome of it. I, for me, it's White Light, White Heat, which is probably the reality, more the reality of what what's going on. But yeah, that's the factory record. I mean, that's the record that he, he he put them together, or not put them together, but he came to them and said, look, I'm going to promote you. I want you to be my band. And that is, and one of the songs, there were several songs that he told them to write or gave them subjects, you know, write one about 80. And that's Femme Fatale, which is just... Yeah, he said, I think he said, um, uh, Lou Reed said, Andy said I should write a song about Edie Sedgwick. I said, like what? And he said, oh, don't you think she's a Femme Fatale, Lou? So I wrote Femme Fatale, and we gave it to Nico. But, I mean, Nico's voice back then. And she has her album, I think it's just, is her album called The Chelsea Girl, which is obviously (laughs) a nod nod to the film, The Chelsea Girls. But, like, if people love that that Nico song and uh, Royal Tenenbaums, when Gwyneth Paltrow gets off the bus, well, that's from that album, The Chelsea Girl. (laughs) Chelsea girl. Um, it's not a very nice song though. It's not a very flattering song. I used it in the, you know, I had a, a kind of an episode about Edie and I, I had the program speak the words because they're not very nice. You know, she's just a little tease. It's weird. Ever since I was like a little kid, I've been completely incapable of even hearing words in song. I, for me, it's all melody. And so yeah. I, I can get the mood, I can get the emotion, the emotion, but unless I sit down with like the liner notes, yeah. I, I, even with like a Beatles song where it's like very clear or like, or Johnny Cash where the words are very clear, I have a really hard time remembering or absorbing lyrics of any kind unless I make a really pronounced effort. Yeah, it's just, I wonder about that because, you know, they really barely overlap. And the Velvet Underground are kind of at that end point there for her. So they don't, I mean, there's pictures of them together. Like yeah, but it seems like Edie's already kind of on her way out, and there's a, a she's already kind of alienated from the the Warhol scene by the time the Velvet Underground really starts to pop. Yeah, I'm, I, I would be curious to know more about what you know what that what that was like at the time, like some idea, some real idea of what was. I mean, going you on. can't argue with some of the artistic results. Obviously, movies are getting made, songs are getting written, written paintings are being made like there's a lot there's a massive amount of output and it just seems like Edie didn't necessarily have the discipline or the focus to be like a rigorous hard-working artist they say you'd be shooting a movie with her and she would show up seven hours late and like oh my god and like not understand why people would be pissed that she shows up doped out of her mind on drugs like seven days like that's, that's, that's the end that's, of the work day like the shoot day's yeah. done and you missed see, it that, that, that comes though from that background and that lineage that Warhol's so fascinated with yeah with her taking stuff yeah she needed money or whatever but evidently she was a klepto but before that she would just pinch things because they were hers i mean everything was available yeah, a sense of entitlement yeah 
Um, but that's what he found fascinating. But it also caused this friction where he's a workaholic. I mean, yeah, it's, found- it's great for cocktail parties when you show up fashionably late. But if you're trying to make a movie, guess what? People trains need to run on time, or the movie doesn't yeah. get made. Even even these movies, you know, cost money. Yeah. It, it, and time. It's equipment. And, it's people's time. It's right. space. Everything in New York is just a little bit more expensive, no matter what you're doing. And if you're working here in New York and you have a crew, even if it's a, a piecemeal crew, a little, you know, a little nothing crew, it's still it's money and resources and time that he could be devoting to other endeavors. Was a project, which he, uh, which he did constantly, incessantly. I mean, I know he said he wasn't going to paint anymore. He's going to make movies because it's easier. But he had to make paintings to fund the movies. Um, and so he was working constantly. It reminds me a little bit like movies are a really powerful mistress and a lot of people have fallen under their spell, but it's a situation like like Orson Welles late in life was unable to make or direct movies that were hits, but he loved directing more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So he would go off and act in a million other movies to save up enough cash to finance his movies that were then bombs. And then he would go act in a couple other more movies and he'd do it again. And it's like, well, maybe you should just be an actor and you'd probably do, do just fine. Flower commercials. But yeah. when you, once you fall in love with that, as he described it, the world's biggest train set, it takes over. And it, it seems like Andy Warhol, at least in the 60s, he got completely bitten by the movie Bug and all of his thoughts were bent on it. Well, you know, he grew, you know, he grew up in indoors, sickly, he read Hollywood magazines. Didn't he have like a funky skin disorder as well? Yeah, um, it made his skin really sort of uh, bumpy, and he tried to get it. It, it described once like a sanding process that Gross. didn't really do a whole lot. Yeah, he had his nose done. He was really insecure about his looks, and he was bald. Of course, he started going bald. I think like in his twenties. You know, those are yeah, all. I started going bald at seventeen. Like, <laughs> cry me a river. <laughs> yeah, well, you should have got a silver wig, man. Exactly. I, I have always thought about that like for the YouTube channel just like once a year put on a really strange wig just to yeah. put the zap on people but I've, I've never pulled the trigger <laughs> uh, but she but by the time his this epic film comes out this epic film is made like you said she's pulled out now that movie is available it's called Afternoon but Chelsea Girls she is absent yeah she Which got it. some favorable reviews with people talking about how he's reinventing the form of movies. But in Variety, they said, it's a pointless, excruciatingly dull three and a half hours spent in the company of Andy Warhol's friends. But if you want to know what it's like to spend three and a half hours in the company of Andy Warhol's friends, the movie's there as a record. <laughs> well, it is a kind of anthropological... I mean, again, there is this anthropological concern. He recorded everybody audio that came in there. He had, he had a, The first thing he had was a recorder, a TAC recorder, I think. Or anyway... And then he got the video camera, and everybody had to sit for portraits. He would have recorded everything if he could have. So there is that element to it. But when that thing's put together right, like in the version on YouTube, you have Andine and Ingrid Superstar, and she's in the confessional, the two couches or whatever, black and white. And then you have Nico in the kitchen uh, cutting her hair. Again, another sort of mundane task. That, to me, that was very... Uh, I had a kind of I had a kind of a response to it aesthetically that was almost um, anxious. I enjoy watching Nico in action just because obviously I love her music. She's so strikingly beautiful. So I can look at Nico's when you start getting into like, oh, this is gonna be some like fat aging lesbian like injecting somebody in their butt, and I was like, all yeah, right, like all right, can we go back to Nico, please? Like, <laughs> but one of the things that happens when you're watching it is like you you'll focus on one side, and then for whatever reason you realize. But there's something going on on the other side. You can't 
that's where some of the anxiety comes from because you can't focus on both. You have to make a decision. So not only are there 12 different reels that can be put together in any number of ways, you also edit the film yourself by choosing what to watch while it's while playing. It's crazy. Apparently, at one point, they were thinking about just playing the whole thing as one big movie. And finally, uh, he and uh, was it Paul Morrissey it's like, oh, well, maybe we could put it side by side. And it'll cut the length in half and it'll be more interesting. Like, thank God they decided to come up with that, that innovation of the split screen. Because I, I love split screen. Brian De Palma uses it really well, obviously, in a variety of his films. He's probably most famous for it. But split screen is a totally viable format. And I think it should be used more often. I guess it's so abundantly self-conscious and like you throw the audience completely out of any like suspension of disbelief that some people are reluctant to use it but watch carrie when carrie throws down at the prom the split screen is awe-inspiring and i think it isn't like when they do the color faces like color lights on faces i could watch that forever and then and i know but there's just some very beautiful sort of combinations that can be put together in the film and some of them are very different the the scene with Malinga and uh, and Mary Warnov is a very I love that room. It's just got that kind of delicate sort of like like faux organic like a side like the whole room almost like the room bedroom and daisies. What do you think um, of the poster for the film? Because I, I like because even Andy Warhol admitted, you know what? I think the poster is actually better than the movie. <laughs> <than the movie. laughs> I'm inclined to agree. I love. The, I think the poster is one of the most awe inspiring posters I've ever seen. It's, I, I'd, I'd rather look at the poster for three and a half hours and watch the movie again. Well, I, this is why I left Chelsea Girls off the list. And I thought, well, let's focus on Edie because Edie will, will bring an interest to this that, that's beyond the conceptual ideas of the films. But it was, it, and I thought to myself, that's three hours. He's going to hate me if he has to sit for three hours and watch this. But, but it's, and it's, it's a piece of movie history. It's inspired careers. And so whether I enjoy watching it or not, it, it is one of those monumental films yeah, from that decade. And anytime a movie inspires filmographies of uh, other people, it's an important chapter. So even if I, I can totally love and appreciate the history, even if I would much, much rather be watching pornography or mixed martial yeah. arts or whatever. But yeah, so well, like I said, I find this entire 10 year saga to be riveting, even if the movies are not necessarily like my idea of movies. Well, um, but was it um, the artist is what Alan Alan Aldridge who did the uh, the poster? But it's basically this sixteen year old girl with all these doorways going into different parts of her body, including her nether yeah. regions. But it's it's really striking. Really <laughs> cool. Uh, and Andy did do it. You know, he did. We like we look at movie posters today, and it's a bunch of floating heads like done in Photoshop uh, by like an like an intern who has been smoking weed all day. It's like all right, well, th this is like a real the, the movie poster is a work of art unto itself. You don't have to release the movie; just release the poster. Yeah. Well, so you got through it, and then we actually have a movie. We actually do have a movie. All right, so let's, let's let's transition into Chow Manhattan, which is which is a movie movie starring her, shot at different points in her life as she's basically stumbling toward her premature demise. So, give set the stage for where she is physically, where she is mentally, as she begins and shoots and then ends this film because it, this is really where this is the, the end of her tale but she yeah. at least gets to kind of go out with a bang as the star of her own film hey, uh, who's in pictures have you got there I'm preparing a portfolio of friends and acquaintances I knew in New York during my modeling career
Superstar almost really had a bad effect on. It seems it's strange. Wherever I've been, I've been quite notorious and quite innocently so. But I've never been anywhere where I haven't been known. I remember many times in New York, I'd be out all day frolicking around the Lower East Side, and then I'd come back and I was. Very heavy on my makeup. Then I'd spend about an hour and a half clowning. Stop breathing. And they called my mother in California and said uh, that I was dead. And I thought I was dead. Within the next ten minutes, I started to breathe. Isn't that weird? God damn! Sounds like you really got your tit caught in the ringer, huh? Maybe that's how come they stick up like that. I finally had to sell my Mercedes. All my clothes, Balenciaga originals, Chanel's, all my furs, all my jewels, for money for drugs. Huh? Maybe if I stick around, I can get me a little poon. Well, it's a split. It, it has a split history. Um, you know, talking about what how things went down, we do get lots of footage of her in that period after Warhol and before she's hospitalized again so there's her and paul america and some of these other characters that were factory characters it was people from the factory that wanted to make this movie um and so you see her in her probably her worst state before really hitting the, the end like well in there the- are times where she's incapable of human speech and yeah. i think a lot of that's probably drugs obviously would do that but she was also going through like shock therapy and she'd been hospitalized from burn several times like there's so little left like when you see her around 65 talking to merv griffin she's she's so present and so clear and so charming and then flash forward only a couple of years it's like ooh, like you've got actual like brain damage now You, you can no longer speak well you know the the commentary on the film is there's a the scenes where they're in the black and white part, the part that's shot in 67, 68, and there's a BN or some hippie thing going on in New York. And the, the director says, this is the moment. Like, this is the weekend where this was like the point of no return. Like, th- this is where you see her in this trying to climb up a rock. After that weekend, it was all over. And that's like 66. She dies in 72. Yeah. Um, and then there's a party with Allen Ginsberg walking around naked and stuff. Man, I I like Hal, but I'm just going to go on record and say I think Allen Ginsberg might be more full of shit than any human being who's ever lived. When he talks about jazz, and a lot of his poetry was about jazz, it's like, you don't know anything at all, and you're talking as if you have some sort of deep poetic insight. He talks about how all you need to play like the saxophone is to be like a fountain of inspiration and put your mouth on the instrument and blow. It's like, 
No, oh. it's actually an instrument that requires skill, and you have to learn, and you have to practice, and you have to learn your scales, and you have to learn how to play the thing. You don't just show up with like a, a bunch of emotions and feelings and start honking. It'll just sound like complete garbage. But for a guy who was so amazed by jazz in the 50s, to have so little understanding of how jazz was created, it's like, you are so full of shit. And people regard him as some god. Admittedly, that first line of Hal is one of the most poetic yeah. lines of the 20th century. But that's all he's got, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but at this point, he's being paid, like, I think $1,500 to come and do some Buddhist chant. Like, you could pay him to come and do these things. Hippie bullshit. But the second part of the film, the second part of it is in 72. This was 71. Yeah, after she's had her her breasts augmented, but she's very, very excited to share on the screen. She spends most of the color parts of the film, the films, the part of the film that's in '71, without a shirt on. Yeah, she's showing off. Yeah, she lives with her mother in this old mansion, but she lives down in the empty swimming pool, where she has big, blown-up pictures of people from the factory and of her when she was. And the the conceit of the film is her telling her new caretaker about her time in New York. And yeah. so they use that old footage. Talking smack about Warhol's scene and how it's all bullshit, etc. Basically, she's airing her grievances. She gets a chance to air her grievances. She does. and um, But it's so, she's so far gone. Like, uh, she's, you know, she sounds high the whole time. And, and but, if not high, she just sounds like, I mean, it's one of those things where if you, gone through a period where you've had a lot of substances in your system, even when you're not fucked up, you're You're still still totally fucked up. Your mind just can't heal and come together. She would have needed like months of yoga and green tea and like, you know, living a healthy life to even like put together a complete sentence. You can just tell she is, she's zonked even when she's not zonked. Yeah. And you go back to Merv Griffin, you know, where she's so vivacious, she's so quick. She's just, you know, alert. She's there. Every sentence in this seems like a struggle. Like it's like, Really, Can I get you a cup of coffee? Like, come on, like let's let's, let's yeah. sharpen up. But but it, it, that's the thing. They said she really wanted to. I mean, she was still a coach. I mean, she she wanted people to see what had happened to her. Like, she wanted people to see the reality of when she's picked up by the fella at night. You know, she's hitchhiking. Yeah, like she that. had escaped from rehab. Yeah, I mean. Actually, was out on the street, which is where she met her husband. It's like, whoa, I don't know, I don't know if it's a good idea to ma- marry a fellow drug abuser. <laughs> but, but, yeah, uh, in, um, you know, the wedding—that's footage from her actual wedding. Absolutely, there. yeah. The- but you just get the sense, like when that—that's what kills me watching this movie is this dumbass. And this is coming from someone who was a dumbass, long-haired, like wannabe hippie <laughs> dude from like age eighteen to twenty-one. But this fucking idiot they have as her co-star—he's like this country boy hippie who is a complete shitwit and is like, oh, shucks, oh, man, oh, man, you're so pretty. And it's like, anytime she's not on screen, you want to take your TV and just hurl it out like the highest window you can find because these these guys, these characters are so annoying. But when he finds her and he basically like, drags her naked into his car, takes her home, drags her naked into her home. It's like, like, oh, this is like her nightly ritual where she just passed out wherever she might be. Um, It's how he does get... No, probably one of my favorite lines ever. She asked me, would you like to teach my daughter how to make a flying saucer? Um, That's what he wants to do in life. He wants to make a flying saucer. He keeps talking about the aliens and everything. He would have been great in in a five or ten minute scene or using small doses, but he's like the star of the movie. And by the end, let's just say I turned against him. 
know, she said he had Brillo pads for brains or something like that. So yeah, he 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 is he is uh, got shit for brains, as they say. But I do like the black and white flashback stuff in here. I love like seeing like all the footage of the doctor giving everybody injections of like vitamins and drugs in their asses and things like that. And the slideshow, the naked pool party, where you can tell she's so clear and so alert and probably dope out of her mind on speed, but just having so much fun. You do get a little look into that world and how now that it's over, it is so fucking over. Oh, gosh. It's uh, badly over. And it's ended badly. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah it's, a, it's a depressing story. Now, as someone who's got strong opinions about music, what do you think of the soundtrack to Chow Manhattan? Uh, it was okay. I, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't particularly. I don't really remember that being much of a thing that I thought. That it's got songs by Richie Havens, John Phillips, yeah. Kim Melford, and the duo of Skip Batten and Kim Fowley. And it's got some electronic music by Gino Perserkio. I think is how you say his name. But some of the tunes, I'll admit, I was kind of tapping my foot. I was like, all right, I, I, I can, I can get into this. But I, stuff, I could see that. But you know who put the did the electronic music is the fellow from. Beauty number two. That's gotcha. Okay, very cool. He went on to do that. I, the one thing that kind of threw me was not threw me, but I thought was not good was where they tried to use split screen and obviously made some references back to Warhol's work in Chow Manhattan. Um, Bridge of Berlin again. She's in the toilet, shooting up speed, talking about how much she needs speed. I don't need yoga. I don't need whatever. I need my amphetamines. But I feel like all these movies are like the ultimate cautionary tale about how creativity and desire are not enough to create engaging cinema. Like at a certain point, an artist needs just a modicum of discipline to kind of bring it all together. When you watch Chow Manhattan, you're like, this movie's just incoherent and has no idea what it wants to be. And they're just, they're lucky. There's someone as beautiful and interesting as Edie Cedric or as someone as tragic where you have like the fascinating old footage and these really depressing new footage combined. But once again, if she's not on screen, Chow Manhattan is unwatchable in my opinion no i agree it's not a this is actually a movie movie so i'm not as and it's when it doesn't work it just doesn't work um but the thing is it there was a totally different plot for the black and white footage in 67 68 and uma thurman's parents are in it gotcha Um, i saw uma's dad speak at a lecture at the university i think his name is robert robert thurman came and spoke about all sorts of topics that were far beyond my pay grade but my my girlfriend at the time was like we have to go i was like I guess we have to go, and so we went. So yeah, she was into yeah. Buddhism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's. I guess he's really, really high up in that. But but there's a whole. There were all sorts of plots and stuff that had to be dropped. So it, it really is kind of a Frankenstein work um, that's pieced together two totally different movies and their aspects, especially of the newer parts. It just. I mean, I I enjoy the sight of seeing her like topless wearing headphones. Like, oh my gosh, she's still like this manic pixie chick kind of. You well, know, kind of that. Yeah, she still she still got it to a degree, but man, she just she's clearly somebody who needed just a good writer and a good director. And I feel like if she'd had like say she'd had a little less substance problems and had bumped into someone like John Cassavetes and he'd thrown oh, yeah. her into a scene in Faces. Like, that would have been ideal where she could have improvised, been spontaneous in the moment, and embraced all the qualities that made her so interesting, but not have to be so disciplined that she feels like she's not getting to be herself. But that's a director that probably could have found a way to put her to use. But Andy Warhol was no John Cassavetes, at least when it came to creating cinema. 
No, and he had no interest in engaging with anybody to that extent either. Like he had no interest in trying to mold anybody or shape anybody. He was trying to get people to be the most them that they could be. He was just trying to get things out of people. He definitely wasn't trying to shape them. He definitely wasn't trying to. He, there was no forethought for Edie Cedric. Yeah. Let's talk about how she finally met her maker. So what happened? Where, where does her story draw to a close? Draws to a close with Barbichan's overdose. Um, I think her husband, like she went to sleep. I think he thought she was okay. Like she'd been doing a little better. And then she was, obviously was not. She may have cleaned herself up a little bit. Her brother said that she'd gotten, seemed to be cleaned up a couple weeks before um, her death. But you know how it is with people when they're now, coming. I don't even know what a barbiturate, barbiturate is. Is it just a sleeping pill or what is it? It's a heavy down. I mean, like, gotcha. uh, um, so you take speed all day and you need something to let you finally fall asleep. Well, that's how she started doing the heroin was to, so she could sleep. It's like, let me just simplify your life for you. Don't take either and you'll just be awake when you're awake and you'll sleep that's when right. you sleep. <laughs> but that, that, I guess it's very tempting. We're like, well, it's a, it's a shortcut. I'm up when I need to be up, and I'm down when I need to be down. So just, yeah, and, but like, you know, whether it's Elvis or whomever, it's there's so many case studies of uppers and downers combining to take people out that you would think people would get the memo. Well, and that you know, any, any sleep inducing drug, you got to be careful with it. Yeah, I mean Heath Ledger or whomever. I mean, yeah, just I almost never take anything to fall. I love caffeine. I'm a caffeine junkie. And there are times where I'm unable to sleep because I've had too much coffee. But I'm like, you know what? I will sleep fitfully for a few hours. I'll get up. I'll feel like shit. But if, eventually the sleep will come and I'll be, I'll be back to my equilibrium. But I never try and bring the sleep on. I just, decide, I, just, I just kind of power out or power through the shitty parts until I feel normal again. If it wasn't for Ambien, I'd never sleep too. I've never, gotcha. uh, I've never been a sleeper. Um, even as a kid, I just, um, yeah, I've taken, I took Ambien over the summer cause I had severe jet lag over in Italy and I, I just wasn't sleeping at all. And I was like, all right, well at a certain point, I'm, I'm bound to get tired. I'm going to fall asleep. But I just was up all night and I would need to like, we'd be going to the Vatican and I'm like, well, I need to get some sleep. So I tried taking Ambien, but I would sleep hard for like an hour or two and then wake up and just feel all fucked up. So yeah, wow. I, 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 don't, I don't know what the solution is for me, but honestly, Seems to be working. rubbing went out. Smoking a little weed, then rubbing one out, and then taking a bath and reading a little book. That is my, my nightly ritual to go to sleep, and it fucking works. It's <laughs> all I need. Andy Warhol's not around. Yeah, man. He, well, he, he can, I mean, if he wanted to make an hour film out of it, I would be flattered beyond words. So what is the legacy of the story of Edie Sedgwick and her collaborations with Andy Warhol? Because obviously decades later, people are still riveted. People are still writing books, making documentaries, feature films. It's a story that kind of won't go away. So just as someone who pitched this in the first place, what is this – what does this chapter to, for film history mean? Because obviously it's a weird chapter where it intersects with the world of celebrity and the world of art and just New York society. It's, just, it's, a, it's not a Hollywood store in any way, shape, or form. It's totally different from your typical kind of movie topic. Well, I think for Warhol's film, I think personally he is he, – it, because he's Andy Warhol, people are aware of it. I don't think otherwise people would be aware of this type of film. He, it is a great reminder. It's a great sort of like reset on on movies, on film as an aesthetic experience, as a visual medium. Yeah, art for art's sake. And it is like reminding you that look, it, it, 
there is film separate from literary concerns. Like it, it, it is possible to have this as a visual experience, as a moving painting. Um, remember the visual poetry of it. Like remember that there's this visual element. Now, whether he intended that necessarily or not, it's hard to say. I think for Edie Sedgwick, though, and you see like Chantel Ackerman, like I, she had to have seen some Warhol films. And you, the way she uses time, the way she, the way she presents tasks, like in the kitchen. Uh, oh, That's I why I can't that. watch her movies. Like the moment I see oh. somebody, like in general, if I'm watching a movie, whether it's Claire Denis or Chantel Ackerman, remember, oh. if, if somebody's shown doing laundry or like mundane everyday tasks, I'm like, I'm out, I'm done, because I, I do that on my own. I watch movies for a heightened sense of experience, whether it's fear or dread or whatever the case might be, or you know, arousal. But I, I want emotion. And I know some people really like gritty authenticity and they love the everyday, like, or as Rob Cotto likes to describe him, like, he's like, well, are you a fan of minimalist British dramas? I'm like, no, I don't want any minimalist anything ever. I want maximalist. <laughs> I want music and sensation. I, w- I want movies to blow my goddamn face off. Well, I think there's a, there's a, there's an intellectual aspect to it that is pretty, pretty mind boggling, but um, it is unfortunate that he never really got engaged with color because Andy Warhol, if nothing else, I mean, that's one thing that gets color as a colorist. As far as Edie goes, Edie, there's two things that really, I think make her a significant figure. One, she's really the first representation of what we easily recognize as celebrity for celebrity's sake. Yeah. Lindsay Lohan, Kim, Kim, Kim Kardashian, just they're, they don't do anything. They just, they're just celebrities. They just, and they perpetuate their own celebrity. And there's an aspect that of what Warhol's doing where he's trying to get people to be extra who they are that is kind of a social media thing where people sort oh, of yeah. curate their own like existence for everybody. Warhol and, would have fucking loved social media and YouTube and Twitter. He would have eaten it really? up. He would have loved it. He recorded it. Um, but the other thing is while she's a, a, like, a, like a seminal figure for the world that we can't avoid today – there's also like a tragic, like traditional sort of tragic arc to her story. So you can have the traditional story and you can read it that way where it's her own brilliance, you know, that burns her out. I think the, the, the one of the makers of Chow Manhattan used Icarus as an example. This is her Icarus moment. Here at the, um, and so for those reasons, I think it's important to at least acknowledge it. The other thing is you don't really have to watch the movies to talk about them to know what he was trying to do. You could, just engage with the idea. Go watch 30 Seconds of Empire. Go watch, and you get it. You yeah, get you can watch fragments of all of them and then watch documentaries and interviews. And just like I said, I was absolutely fascinated as I was preparing, but I was fascinated by everything except for like, the actual yeah. movies. But I found it to be a riveting story. And I've lived in New York now 11, going on 11 and a half years. And it's like, I find I've, I've like scratched less than 1% of like the, what you can experience here. I'm, I continually remain absolutely absorbed and consumed by the artistic history of this city, whether you're talking about film, music, whatever. But the art world is like a mystery to me. Even though I'm seeing someone who's totally involved, and that's that, that the multiple jobs within the art industry, and they're, they're completely consumed by it, so I, I guess it was a, for me. I just really enjoyed getting to add an additional piece of the puzzle of the New York experience to my overall kind of knowledge of my of my adopted home. So yeah, I, I was uh, I was absolutely floored by this story because I was like I said, I was largely a blank slate on it prior to getting ready for this. So thanks again for making the pitch. 
Oh man, I, thanks for letting me come on and talk about it. I think it's, I mean, I, I'm an outsider. I can't say for sure, but it just seems to me like it, that's a crucial aspect of the city's cultural history. Hundred percent. At least sixty-three, sixty-eight. That the factory, the hat factory, era, silver factory. Yeah, um, that was it. I, I you know, from Edie Sedgwick, the Velvet Underground, Andy himself, to Bob Dylan. To, I mean, all these people. Yeah, it's 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 a very cool chapter of New York's cultural history, without a doubt. And we really haven't talked about because about the shocking, the sort of lurid aspects um, that were put on display. I mean, Andy was Andy Warhol was like a pathological voyeur. I mean, that 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 seems very obvious. I mean, his it's movies are the ultimate voyeuristic experience. Like you say, oh, Rear Window is a voyeuristic movie, sure, no. but it's also got like a plot and a story. Like wow. these are he's setting up his camera and he's turning loose his little pets and he's just watching them freak yeah. out <laughs> he really wants to know what he had a problem I mean, he, he seems to have had an issue with any sort of intimacy but he really seems to have wanted to engage with the world and so you stick this camera between you and me and i can watch i have permission to watch i i can linger as long as i want and yeah. i don't have to actually engage with you well i mean um, Movie buffs, not all, but many are classic introverts who spend a lot of time in dark rooms, oftentimes by themselves, and having these voyeuristic experiences. So in a way, he's kind of getting at the root of what movies are all about, where we're, we're all peeping toms, whether we want to admit it or not. And I think that's important, man. It's a reminder, like, look, while you're, worried, while you're wondering why this relationship is breaking apart, and you know 20 minutes later they're going to find a reason to get back together, and you're going to have exactly the same experience. Good to be reminded every once in a while that there is another aspect to this whole art form, this whole medium. Absolutely. And, I, and also, I want to—I do want to say this. I think Chelsea Girls has some gorgeous moments when it's put together right, although it's hard to find it put together right. And I think Poor Little Rich Girl is gorgeous, especially the out-of-frame, no-speaking reel, the first reel with the Everly Brothers record on. It is just—it's gorgeous. So. So all of the conceptualizing out the window, that one is just a gorgeous 30 minutes of film. Very cool. Well, I hope you all have enjoyed this conversation. Pretty much you can pick any entry point in the movies or the interviews or the music or the history or the documentaries, and you're going to find this story to be interesting. So hopefully we've uh, encouraged some folks out there to take a little bit of a, take a look at this really interesting chapter. And I, I doubt this is the last time um, Warhol will come up on this podcast. Andy Warhol made 99 movies, and I'm sure not all of them are riveting viewing, but I am curious as to why someone who had so much success in one field found himself so drawn to quite a different field. So we will continue this conversation at a later date. But if, if folks want to talk to Eric Bartlam about Warhol, Nico, Sedgwick, Bob Dylan, New York, any of these topics, where can people hunt you down, etc.? Yeah, I might not have a whole lot to say about Bob Dylan, but... How dare you? <laughs> I'm at E underscore F underscore Bartlett on Twitter. Um, that's where you can find me. I'm on there all the I'm time. I'm going to litter this episode with like six Bob Dylan songs just to, just to make it extra oh, special Gary, for you. <laughs> you, man. you don't need any Bob Dylan out there. Although, you know, he's a huge influence on them. So I'm glad it's it's like uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and the Doors. I don't care anything about the Doors, but I love Echo and the Bunnymen. So they loved them. Great. Who's your favorite? Speaking of the Doors, because obviously they have uh, Andy Warhol pops up in that movie. Uh, who's your favorite on-screen actor as Andy Warhol? Because a lot of people have played Andy Warhol over the years. Oh, uh, 
gosh, I don't think any of them have been all that great. But the one who was in the Doors, that was a uh, Crispin Glover. Yeah, that that definitely Crispin Glover. I, so I'm pretty he, sure he gives him that phone and he's like, "Now you can talk to God." Yeah, talk to God. yeah. yeah that, that was um. You know, it's not. And as a little kid, I was like, "Who's that fucking weirdo talking to Jim Morrison?" <laughs> I was totally confused. <laughs> he's such a strange character, man. I mean, really is, and I don't know. You know, a lot of the things, you know, a lot of aphorisms or whatever. That and Guy Pierce yeah. played him in Factory Girl, and didn't David Bowie play him in the uh, the movie about Basquiat? Yeah, yeah, he did. As a matter of fact, and yeah. I, he was okay. But I, I think Chris. Was but it's funny, like people always are talking about how, like, you know, Andy Warhol popularizes popularizes this idea of where in the future everybody will be famous for fifteen minutes. He kind of predicted the social media age where somebody can be famous for like on Instagram just for having awesome butt cheeks and just doing squats. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're like people with millions of followers and all they do is they do squats and they pose around the city showing off their perfectly sculpted butt cheeks and they're very famous for their people. So it's once again, Andy Warhol's shadow, he casts a very long shadow that's, that stretches out decades. You know, even a lot of those sayings, though, are like have many hands on them. Like somebody else actually put together the sort of ideas that he would talk about. There's so much about what he did that had somebody else's hand on it. Well, at this point, they've become part of the fabric of like art legend. Yeah. And it's like the yeah. legend's more important than the actual fact. Absolutely. And he, he seemed to know that, too. Yeah. I mean, he Myth really making, storytelling. He never had no interest in it. He had no stories. Yeah, he, he just liked publicity all. and glamour and fame and it's success. And fame, but he had no no ability to tell stories. And that's what's going to come up later in the later movies, where they're trying to make these more accessible movies. They're beyond his grasp. Man, well, Paul we Moore. hope you all have enjoyed this episode. If you did, please hunt me down on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you really want to listen to podcasts like a total podcasting champ, you can find some wrong, real merchandise in the link yeah, in, down in the show notes. Work. Yep. Eric's bought a few shirts and people are they're buying cups and buying shirts. And now I just need to figure out some new products to, to offer as part of the uh, the overall lineup. But obviously, T-shirts and coffee cups seem like a great place to start because that's just an extension of who I am. I wear a lot of T-shirts and I drink a fuck ton of coffee. But if you're hungering for some more content, hunt on my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. Getting kind of close to 18,000 subscribers, which is super cool. So I'm always very appreciative of the support on that platform. But once again, can't thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.